Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. My name is John Malcolm. I am the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. And we are co-hosting this event with the Federalist Society. So in his new book, Defender in Chief, (coughs) Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, Professor John Hughes states, and I quote, if friends had told me on January 21st, 2017, that I would write a book on Donald Trump as a defender of the Constitution, I would have questioned their sanity. Indeed, a few months into Trump's presidency, John wrote an op-ed in the New York Times entitled, Executive Power Run Amok. However, upon reflection, John writes, boy, was I wrong. Trump's campaigns like a populist, but governs like a constitutional conservative. There are others, like Harvard Law Professor Larry Tribe, who said a mere 11 days into the Trump presidency, I wouldn't say he's bumping into the Constitution. He's crashing through it. The president's detractors have not changed their minds or their rhetoric since then. In fact, yesterday on CNN, South Carolina Representative Jim Clyburn compared Donald Trump to Mussolini. To be sure, there are certainly have been times when the president has made assertions that have, shall we say, puzzled constitutional scholars. But in terms of his actions, not his rhetoric, has the president respected the Constitution or trampled on it? We are very fortunate today to have with us two panelists, including John Yu, to discuss how the Constitution has fared during the Trump administration. And although neither one of our panelists needs an introduction, I will give them them one anyway. They will then make some brief remarks, followed by some moderated Q&A with me, and then we will be plenty of time for questions from the audience. So please feel feel free to enter those into the chat section. So first, first we will hear from John Yu. John is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law and Director of the Korea Law Center the California Constitution Center, and the law school's program in public law and policy at Berkeley Law School. He is also a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. After graduating from Harvard College and before attending law school, John worked as a reporter in Washington, D.C., and after graduating law school, he clerked for Judge Lawrence Silverman on the D.C. Circuit and for Justice Clarence Thomas. He has previously served as general counsel on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, as a deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department, where he worked on issues involving foreign affairs, national security, and separation of powers. He's been a visiting scholar at several different law schools and is the author of many books, including the one we are going to discuss today, which has just been released, Defender-in-Chief Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. David Rivkin is a member of Baker Hostetler's litigation, international, and environmental teams, and serves as a co-leader of the firm's appellate and major motions practice. He has extensive experience in constitutional, administrative, and international law litigation, and has been involved in numerous high-profile cases. He got his undergraduate and a master's degree from Georgetown and his law degree from Columbia. Like John, David has held several significant positions in the government, including as Deputy Director of the Office of Policy Development at the Justice Department, Legal Advisor in the Office of the Vice President, Associate General Counsel at the Department of Energy, Associate White House Counsel, and as Associate Executive Director and General Counsel of the President's Council on Competitiveness. David has also published hundreds of articles, op-eds, book reviews, and book chapters on a variety of issues that have appeared in uh, publications across the country. And he is also a frequent media commentator. And with that, I will rest my voice for a moment. And John, turn it over to you. (laughs) Well, John, thank you very much. Uh, I'm sorry to see you're not doing well. I trust it's because you've been doing lots of interviews about my new book. Your voice sounds like my throat feels. 
I really want to thank the Heritage Foundation and Federal Society uh, for co-sponsoring this event. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be here with John. Uh, uh, we've known John and I've known each other for almost 20 years now since we worked in the Justice Department together. It's really great to be here with David Rifkin, who uh, I am embarrassed to admit I've known even longer. I think David and I go back almost 30 years, and we sometimes had the pleasure of debating, and then at the same time, the pleasure of co-authoring. And I also want to thank Jessica Klein, of course, uh, John's assistant, who's put all this together with her usual efficiency and flair. It's really good to talk about this, I think, at a function sponsored by the Heritage Foundation and the Federal Society, because this is all their fault. Because if you go back to the 2016 campaign, many conservatives had doubts, including myself, about President Trump and what he would do to the Constitution. Uh, and at a key moment in the primaries, I believe when it was just Trump and Ted Cruz left, uh, President Trump did a remarkable thing for the first time ever as a candidate. He came out with a short list, and he said he would only pick his Supreme Court justices from this list of 10, then later 20. Uh, and he put out broadly that he didn't actually know any of the people on the list. He even wanted to put his sister on the list, and it got rejected, right? The only people who made up the list were John Malcolm and Leonard Leo of the Heritage Foundation and the Federal Society. So it's all their fault. <laughs> and they didn't even put me on the list. I'm still ticked off at them about that. Nor did they put Rifkin on the list. So we've got some talking to them to do. <laughs> let me uh, just start out here by saying that theme, however, about Trump and the Constitution has been a constant one throughout his administration. And it's not just liberals who have attacked President Trump. Take President Trump's recent tweet about whether the elections in November should be postponed because of the potential for wide-scale fraud with mail-in balloting. Uh, Henry Olson, who usually is a stout defender of the administration, uh, said in the Washington Post, let me see if I have this right, quote, the tweet is, quote, the single most anti-democratic statement any sitting president has ever made, unquote. Uh, Stephen Calabresi, a conservative Northwestern law professor, and also one of the co-founders of the Federal Society declared in a New York Times op-ed, quote, this latest tweet is fascistic and is itself grounds for the president's immediate impeachment again. This is very similar, or at least it resuscitates a consistent theme that has been raised throughout the Trump presidency, also most notably by uh, liberal critics. Of course, he was impeached allegedly for violating the Constitution. At the time of his impeachment, Speaker Pelosi, for example, said, quote, if we allow one president, any president, no matter who she or he may be, to go down this path, we are saying goodbye to the republic and hello to a president king. Mind you, at the same time, I think critics today have a somewhat um, contradictory criticism of President Trump, because at the same time, uh, people also, I would say, attacking President Trump for not seizing dictatorial powers in response to the pandemic. People are demanding that he impose a nationwide mask mandate. That was a piece in the New York Times recently. Or shut down or reopen all the businesses in the country and so on. But it really is uh, Trump. I think the main memes that Trump has been violating the Constitution. He's the proverbial bull in the constitutional China shop. And my argument in my book is that even though I started out with the same doubts, I think at the end of four years, at the end of his first term, as John uh, quoted me, boy, was I wrong. I think Trump has actually been a more stout defender of the Constitution as president uh, than his critics. He wouldn't have thought so at first because he's a populist. Uh, Trump appeals to a broad popular base and populists historically, if you want to look at people like Andrew Jackson or an FDR, populists usually are people who strain against the Constitution and its limits. They're people who want to overcome the Constitution, often are the sparks for a large-scale change in constitutional understandings because they are so interested in achieving their mandates. But Trump is a different kind of creature, I think. Trump is a populist politically, but good governs as a constitutional conservative. Uh, it's not Trump, for example, but his critics who have discussed seriously about getting rid of the Electoral College. It was 
a large number of Democratic presidential nominees who've talked about increasing the size of the Supreme Court from nine to 15 justices, not Trump. There are Trump critics uh, today, including several columnists, at least one columnist, I'm sorry, on the New York Times op-ed page, who called the use of federal law enforcement in response to the recent disorders as the uh, dispatch of an occupying Trump army and declared, is it time to call it fascism yet? It's Trump's critics who want to have more permanent independent councils to turn our political disputes into criminal law enforcement matters, who have supported uh, the rise, I would say, of a permanent law enforcement and national security bureaucracy, who believe that they have more right to say who should and should not be president than the voters of the country. It's Trump's critics who are calling for now nationalization of the energy and transportation sectors uh, in order to achieve the goals of a vague Green New Deal. In contrast, I would say Trump's achievement is not just from stopping all those things from happening, but also from the battles he's had to fight during his presidency. Uh, And, you know, we get wrapped up, I think, in the day-to-day political trench warfare of the Mueller investigation or impeachment. But if you take a step back and look at what was the broader constitutional meaning of those two fights, I think I would argue that they are an effort to restore the framers' 18th century understanding of their constitution instead of the 20th century progressive vision of the constitution. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the Russia collusion investigation, you had, it seems to me, more and more we learn about it, the more and more it looks like the investigation was baseless uh, and was essentially, I, I don't question whether it was good motives or bad motives, but I think Jim Comey and the headquarters staff of the FBI thought that President Trump posed some kind of threat to the national security. They thought as an independent bureaucracy, they thought they should be an independent bureaucracy. They had the right to essentially investigate the person that the people had picked to be the president. That does not compute as a matter of the 18th century constitution. The 18th century constitution makes the president the law, the chief law enforcement officer of the country. Everybody in the executive branch involved in law enforcement is an assistant and works for the president. And so when President Trump wanted to use his favorite tagline, you're fired on Jim Comey, he was reasserting political control over that independent bureaucracy. I would say the same thing is true of the impeachment fiasco. Here again, you had the rise of a national security bureaucracy. Again, a group of people are located mostly in the foreign service, I would say, who believed that they had a better right to decide how foreign policy and diplomacy should be conducted rather than the person that the American people had chosen. And again, lastly, I would say that impeachment also reflected Trump's ability or the ability to protect the right of any president to be independent of Congress. People during the impeachment conflict complained about the fact that the Senate had to vote by two-thirds to remove a president, how somehow that was unfair or unjust. But that was actually by the framers' design to make sure that Congress could not put the president under its thumb. They specifically worried about the idea that we would ever have a president who was subject to removal by Congress because they knew that the power to remove was the power to direct. And so in all these cases, I would just point out that it's President Trump pursuing, no doubt, as people said at the time, his own personal political interests of self-preservation, of survival, of trying to be reelected. But that is by the framers' design. You recall the framers said in the separation of powers, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. They expected people to pursue their political self-interest. The system actually wouldn't work if people did not. And that President Trump should fight as hard as he could using the institutional powers at his disposal, just as they expected Congress and the judiciary would. Their idea was that out of that constant fighting, you would have a broader constitutional good that they may never even intend to achieve or aware of, which was 
the limitations on our government and the maintenance of our individual freedom. Let me close by saying, where does Trump sit maybe in broader constitutional history? Yes, he has been disruptive, mostly I think into the political norms of the office, not on the constitutional norms. That disruption may or may not be appropriate at this time. We don't know, we're living through it. But I would just say in previous periods of American history, we have had sharp disruptions in politics, uh, Jackson period, Lincoln, FDR, some people would say Reagan, where we have had such an encrusted, overpowerful, yet at the same time obsolete bureaucracy and government. That's time at different times, presidents have to come in from the outside, lead a, uh, a revolution in the old order and begin to replace it with something. And here I would say, this might be the possibility if there were to be a Trump second term, to the new questions of the 21st century and not keep defending a government that was designed in the New Deal to handle the problems of the 20th century. So thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about some of the themes of the book. I look very much forward to hearing uh, David's uh, comments and John's questions. Thank you very much. David, over to you. Thank you very much. Pleasure to uh, be with you and uh, pleasure to uh, um, both read and, and comment on John's excellent book. Uh, I think his comments pretty much covered all the key issues, but I'll just spend a few minutes perhaps adding in our emphasis. Uh, so, yes, sometimes uh, unusual rhetoric, uh, different behavior in terms of tweets than has been the case, but obviously there's nothing to do with Constitution, as John said, there's a political norms. When it comes to the actual constitutional behavior, I want to highlight the point that John made just a few minutes ago which is uh, uh, following that pursuing your political interests is entirely consonant with separation of powers because the way in which the framers designed uh, the branches of government to operate, institutions to operate both vertically and horizontally uh, is indeed consonant with one's self-interest, which of course is something that uh, Trump's critics have been emphasizing as somehow uh, unforgivable sin. I remember all the discussion during the impeachment process about how, and I, I think eventually it became you know, pretty clear and expressed pretty crisply, but it doesn't matter if standing in isolation, President Trump had an absolute constitutional right to structure a policy towards Ukraine in a particular fashion, be it delivery of, uh, of military aid or be it seeking to obtain uh, some possible law enforcement information. That was all fine. But what was not fine, what tainted it and made it high crime and misdemeanor is there was somehow to his benefit, which of course is, is, is a silly argument. And I think the framers themselves, if, if you presented it to them in that crisp of the fashion would have all agreed that it cannot be an impeachable offense. So we're passing strange if, if any politically elected official was expected to act in ways that were contrary to your self-interest. Well, there are times in history, and I think uh, a good virtuous president that has to choose between his political interest and national survival would choose national survival, and I very much hope and expect that President Trump would do the same. But 99% of the time, your political interests and your institutional interests are consonant because, to put it somewhat crudely, where you sit is where you stand. In fact, I would argue that one of the problems with separation of powers on the congressional side is that that ephus, that impulse, has largely dissipated. So we see instances where uh, members of Congress both aggrandize their political power and institutional power and surrender the institutional power, depending on uh, what is better from the partisan perspective. And nothing illustrates this better than endless debates about uh, authorizing use of military force uh, and, and other types of national security-related appropriation issues. Uh, I would say that not only Trump has not done, in my opinion, anything uh, wrong when it comes to actually exercising the duties of his office, again, echoing the point that John made, but if you look at even at his litigation uh, strategies, uh, and I, I understand, <laughs> having worked in both DOJ and White House Counsel's office, obviously the president does not file his, does not write his own briefs, does not deliver his own arguments, but what, what, what's, what's good and, again, virtuous, uh, the framers did not expect the chief executive to be a, a constitutional maven. And 
They expected that person to exercise his best judgment of comporting with the Constitution, but also listen to his advisors. And I would say that uh, I probably read every brief filed by the administration, every major case with constitutional implications. And it's not only that I agree with the positions they take. And I, I think they're, they're quite modest. I cannot think about uh, an assertion of executive power where it would be uh, immigration, uh, despite much criticism, the, the use of presidential emergency powers delegated to a president by Congress, uh, or any other matter of pushback against sanctuary cities, which I guess is also an immigration category. I cannot think about anything else uh, that I would find particularly objectionable. And it's a rare situation, uh, frankly, in, in either Republican or Democrat administration. A couple of other points briefly. Uh, look, I think the real anti-constitutional winds that are blowing, uh, and I would say real headwinds, I should say, are a, uh, one is sort of a, a notion that there's nothing but Trump can do that's right. Sort of a never-ending, never-Trumpism, which actually is dangerous in the short run, but not dangerous in the long run, because um, it does not represent any coherent constitutional philosophy. It's sort of difficult to elevate uh, into some kind of new body of doctrine once Trump is gone. That's bad, but I think what's more dangerous is the, the theme that, uh, that uh, John Yu has mentioned, namely the disdain for the most fundamental constitutional norms, be it the equal representation of all states in the Senate, the Electoral College, of course, um, the, um, the federalism, which again, uh, the notion that somehow the, the president is supposed to rise to very occasion and exercise quasi-dictatorial power. So I think to the extent there is a coherent body of, uh, of constitutional doctrine, which I find uh, quite objectionable, it, it really coheres more on, on the left. I don't see any any kind of ailing tendency on the right. Well, let me stop here and uh, hopefully have some questions. And I would love to hear uh, somebody say, what about this piece of litigation? Or what about this action by the president? So we can get into some more granular examples. All right. Well, I'll, I'll try to do that right now. <laughs> so thank you both. Uh, for your comments. So, John, you mentioned some of the threats uh, doing away with the Electoral College, packing the Supreme Court, uh, you know, having the politically accountable people deferring to, uh, you know, career civil servants. We could add others uh, to that. So the ability of the executive to control whether to continue to pursue uh, a, a prosecution in the Michael uh, Flynn case. They're now uh, calls to curtail the president's pardon power because of the clemency uh, that he gave to to Roger Stone. Now, maybe you talked about these during your, I know you met with the president last week, perhaps you had a chance to uh, chat with him about some of these things, but it, I want to stick with the theme you both talked about, <coughs> which is questioning the president's motivations. So we're seeing that in the the Flynn case, uh, the Stone case, impeachment. And you're also seeing that in litigation, including some, some cases in which the Supreme Court, or at least a majority of them, appear to have bought into that. So you have the, you know, whether you can add a citizenship question to the census and, uh, and DACA, you know, what, what were the real motivations behind wanting to end uh, the DACA program? And you talk extensively in your book about, about uh, DACA, the fact that you know, one president can come in and implement something with his pen and his phone, and the other president has to go through the Administrative Procedures Act in order to do this. So all of this questioning of motivation, challenging executive authority, you know, it, it's maybe a ticket for this train ride only because of, of the anger that uh, President Trump causes people. But these, have, of course, have ramifications that will extend well beyond his presidency. And so I was wondering if the two of you would talk a little bit about that. I'll go first if you don't mind. It's a, it's a very uh, difficult and wide-ranging question. Uh, let me start by saying uh, one feature, this dynamic that you're talking about, John, it seems to run like this, and we just seem to go through reruns of it, even though the subject changes, which is that Trump does something. The opposition goes so far overboard in its claims and presses such, I think, extreme constitutional arguments 
that in the end, it leaves Trump, as David was saying, to make very reasonable arguments based on precedent, constitutional history, presidential practice. Uh, and I'm afraid to say, and this goes to your last point, John, that you do see the court has, I think, shifted to accepting some of these remarkable arguments that are going to make it difficult for presidents in the future to achieve the agendas for which we elect them. Um, I did go and meet with President Trump last week. I thought I was going to say, here, here's this copy, sign a picture. Uh, but then I stuck around and they're, you know, they didn't get rid of me, you know. So I stuck around for a little bit and we talked. And one thing is, I would just say is uh, this president, I think, unlike others, even George W. Bush after the 2000 elections, I've been, uh, this president has been subject to wave after wave of unending attacks, not just challenging policies, but questioning his legitimacy as president. And I would have expected to see someone angry or bitter. Uh, that's certainly the impression some people in the media think he gives. But I thought some, I, I came away thinking this guy was energetic, upbeat, and he's a fighter. You know, he, he, he likes fighting, I think. I think he's a New Yorker to his unfortunate credit, <laughs> being a Philadelphian myself. Um, and so I didn't see this kind of negative, uh, you know, sort of pessimistic outlook. I think he is relishing having this, you know, returning to the campaign and uh, a second term. Uh, I, I don't know about you, John David. I'd be exhausted after maybe being president for one week in this kind of last four years. But I think he's he was amazing and full of energy. Um, the second point is, uh, I think these doctrines that have been pressed uh, do represent something new. Uh, and they will either disable the future presence, or as John said, they're going to make it, or, or they'll just be one ticket for one train ride only, which I think would be to the Supreme Court's great discredit. And take the examples you just gave, John, of presidential motivation, which first was raised uh, as a means to attack a presidential decision in the travel ban litigation back in 2017, uh, culminating in Hawaii versus Trump at the Supreme Court. Never before had the courts thought, the Supreme Court at least thought that it could go beyond a facially constitutional executive or executive decision and go behind it and look at the motivation and search around for the president's animus or not in their decision, uh, in his or her decision. Uh, even though in Trump versus Hawaii, the court did uphold the travel ban, it did suggest that it could look at this mental state of the president. And then that continued. Uh, it continued in the census case you just mentioned. I could, you know, you might even argue that was really what was going on in this DACA case, which I found completely incomprehensible as a matter of separation of powers to say that a president, here President Obama, could render enforcement of a law to basically zero for around six million or so cases without any congressional authority, without in an area of Congress and immigration, Congress is predominant. Everybody admits that. Uh, for the next president to come and just say, restore normal enforcement levels, because I thought what President Obama was doing is unconstitutional. And for the Supreme Court then to come in years later and say, no, you have to use the Administrative Procedure Act. And until you do, you must still act in violation of the Constitution as you understand it. I think that's incredible. It's, a, it's not just is it rummaging around, I think, in the motives of a president, but it's also a striking, de striking declaration of judicial supremacy of interpretation over the other uh, branches. Uh, but my, I, I think the, the other thing that's odd about this dynamic is that people don't like it when President Trump uses powers that other presidents have used in the past. And so I wrote this piece saying, well, if President Obama has to stock a power, as it were, to not enforce the law, and if you don't enforce one thing here and one thing there, you create a program all of a sudden, why can't President Trump do the exact same thing? That's the last thing I'll stop with turn to David is you have people, I think, who are Trump's critics who are so out to get him that they want to create this kind of Trump law that only applies to Trump and to no other president ever before or ever, ever after. And that's not what we think of when we think of constitutional law. That's politics. Uh, yeah, I am in strong accord. In fact, it's almost surreal because I promise John and I have not conferred about it. Uh, but John Malcolm, I was going to use exactly the same examples that John, you did, but just to elaborate a, a couple of points, first of all, regarding two uh, Ninth Circuit uh, 
litigation exercises involving the travel ban, the original travel ban, and the new travel ban. Uh, I entirely agree with uh, with John. In fact, I wrote at the time that one of the things that was very depressing to me uh, is how relatively undisturbed the Supreme Court left this scrutiny of presidential motives. Now, we do all know as lawyers, there is a sliver of domestic uh, constitutional jurisprudence where motives matter, sort of more or less uh, exemplified by the famous uh, Lemon versus Kurtz case. So yes, in the establishment uh, uh, clause jurisprudence and some issues uh, relating to you know other domestic laws, for example, that bear upon uh, that bear upon uh, elections. We're looking to see whether the the, the people, particularly uh, in, in the legislature, enacted it, were acting with with animus makes perfect sense. I felt very passionately that broadening this to foreign affairs is uh, is is an exercise in absurdity because let's let's ask ourselves for two seconds. Uh, isn't acting with an animus in a foreign affairs field somebody you believe is the enemy of the United States not relevant to the uh, to the immigration ban? But I mean, it, it was it was designed really to prevent bad guys, the terrorists, from coming here. So having animus towards terrorists is that a bad thing? You, you can disable all sanctions uh, related exercises of power. The whole point of sanctions is because you don't particularly like the people you are sanctioning, and did it for the use of force. So. It is, it is enormously unfortunate. I mean, forget all the rhetoric, forget all the op-ed pieces, as much as uh, both John and I enjoy uh, engaging in the exercise. We do have chunks of our jurisprudence, certainly not at the Ninth Circuit, but beyond that, uh, and, and some Supreme Court opinions that would be cited for years to come. would we'll have law review articles and, 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 and new litigation positions, and that is remarkably unfortunate to me and I think very, very destructive uh, to the constitutional norms. Long going out live the, the, the Trump presidency. And again, one other point I, I would make, which I think John would agree with me, look, uh, people criticize Trump all the time, for example, for expressing in a way that does not comport with standard politically correct decorum uh, a certain view about judicial decisions. Well, let's agree as students of American history. Many precedents, a president, excuse me, I can think about at least five or six examples have expressed their disappointment, shall we say, generally with Supreme Court decisions. That's not anti-constitutional. That's, some, that's political and something where you can be held politically accountable. But the notion that the, the Supreme Court is so fragile or lower courts are so fragile that if a president says something uncomplimentary, um, about a judge or a justice that that going to deter them. That's what the life tenure is, is for. So, I mean, it, it's 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 just to me at one level it's silly. Another another level it's it's tremendously it's tremendously dangerous. John, can I uh, follow up just on one point there? Of course. Um, I didn't uh, talk about my treatment of judges, and uh, but it's a significant part of the uh, my book. And it, but it is the politics of it strikes me again as a double standard because. Who had who? Which president was it that actually threatened the independence of the courts? It was President Obama and his, uh, you know, Democratic supporters in Congress who attacked the Supreme Court while it was considering the constitutionally constitutionality of the Obamacare case. You know, which senators were threatening the Supreme Court this last term about the Louisiana abortion law case? Compared to Trump, you know, for all of uh, Trump's bluster, his use of tweets, tweets, and so on to sort of change our political discussion. I don't think, unless I'm missing something, that he tried to pressure the Supreme Court in the same way that the Obama administration had during the pendency of these really important cases. As David says, once the decision's out, presidents are free like any other citizen to attack the merits or demerits of the decision. But to try to influence the court while it's considering the cases, I didn't, I didn't see that when I was going through the Trump. In fact, if you look at Trump's relationship with the courts, undeniably, as I started out saying, he promised to try to reorient the court's direction and uh, maybe the untold story for most uh, people in the country, the lower courts too. Uh, but he did it in the traditional way, which is you just appoint new people to the court more in line with your constitutional philosophy when vacancies occur. And it's the uh, uh, critics and his opponents in the 2020 primaries in the Democrats, I've talked about expanding the courts. We've talked about 
fiddling with the numbers of justices. I mean, Trump could have done that in the first two years of his presidency too, then when he had a majority in the House and the Senate of the Republican Party, but they chose not to. He chose to use a traditional, slower method, more gradual method, and one that was also more respectful of American political traditions. You could have added uh, the brief that was filed by six senators this term in the Second Amendment case uh, out of New York with a uh, a pretty good implied uh, threat that the court didn't listen, come out the way they wanted the court to come out, uh, that packing the court would take up a, a lot more urgency. So one of the themes in your book, John, is that uh, Democrats and the president's critics have been very quick to jump on both President Trump and past Republican presidents when they do things like send troops or conduct bombing raids in places like Haiti and Panama and Syria or order the targeted killing of Qasem Soleimani um, by saying that such actions require a declaration of war or congressional authorization, but that they sit silently when Democratic presidents do the same thing in Bosnia or Libya. Similarly, Many Democrats and people on the left criticized Ken Starr when he was conducting an investigation to, uh, you know, involving President Clinton. Uh, I want to quote from a March 1998 uh, New York Times article entitled White House is all all out attack on Starr is paying off with his help. And in that article, it said, quote, one White House official was blunt about the strategy, calling the coordinated hostilities part of our continuing campaign to destroy Ken Starr. But when President Trump criticized Bob Mueller, on the other hand, the Democrats said that he was attempting to obstruct justice. So I was wondering you know, what you both think about this double standard that's going on here, whether you'd care to comment on that. John, it's a great point. It's a great reminder, your quote about the New York Times and this independent council study reminds you again, of the difference. Yes, there. not only is a, there a double standard, I think, being applied here, where, yes, Democrats used to be all in favor of the independent counsel uh, until it was used on President Clinton, and now they're in favor of it again. I mean, there, are several, there were several proposals during the Mueller investigation to create in Congress to make him a permanent independent counsel. Uh, take a step back. What was really going on was President Trump, yes, was fighting for his political survival. There's nothing wrong with that. But what he was also doing was also reclaiming the right of the president to control law enforcement in the country. Uh, and it's been progressives, you know, the bigger philosophical fight here has been progressives who like the idea of having a large, powerful government independent of political control. Right? This is an idea that was really most forcefully introduced into our politics by Woodrow Wilson. Uh, you know, David, David Rickett said, you know, the framers didn't want, didn't expect presidents to be constitutional mavens. After the track record of constitutional law professors, actually, I would say that we should enact a bar on constitutional scholars from ever becoming president again. <laughs> Wilson introduced this idea of a technocratic government of people insulated from politics who render every public policy decision into a professional, scientific or technical decision. And that's you could see that in the Mueller report fight, just as you saw it in the Clinton Ken Starr fight, Trump, by fighting off Mueller successfully, but without, I might add, they never went to the lengths, if you remember what the Clinton people did to Starr. They didn't talk about Bob Mueller's family, whether he was religious, his kids. I mean, the, I thought if anybody crossed the lines on uh, you know, proper politics, it was what the Clinton people did to Ken Starr. I thought, and, and you look, Trump, for all of his fighting, did not try to go there with Bob Mueller. I have a lot of respect for Bob Mueller, and I actually at the time was saying, let Mueller finish his investigation. There were no facts. It'll clear him, and then we'll put the Russia collusion claim to bed, and I think that's kind of what happened. But the bigger picture, again, was restoration of political control over the bureaucracy was what Trump was constitutionally fighting for, even if he might not have realized it. The interesting thing about war powers, let me just uh, finish real quick, is that on war powers, the interesting thing to me is not just the president's use of force, and as you point out, John, the uh, how is it, contradictory maybe opinions that critics of his has taken when President Obama was using drones in Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, using force in Libya without congressional consent, going to Syria without congressional consent, uh, even though he as a candidate said he would never use force abroad without congressional 
uh, consent. The interesting thing about Trump, I tried to argue this in this book, I was trying to figure out what is the Trump doctrine? Is the reassertion of American sovereignty, not just over immigration, but in uh, our borders, but as a you know, nation state pursuing its regular interests in foreign affairs. And in that world, that means that the United States is withdrawing from things, not actively engaging. And it looks like, well, what do you know? It looks like the commander in chief and the chief executive actually has a lot of power to do that in the end. If you, for example, he's pulling troops out, has pulled troops out of Syria. He's trying to pull them out of Afghanistan and Germany. He's terminated tons of treaties, the Paris Accords, the TPP, the Iran nuclear deal, the INF treaty, the Open Skies treaty could go on and on. It actually shows, I think, interestingly, that this criticism of the president of foreign affairs was wrong all the time. Because if you really thought that Congress has to give its say-so whenever the president makes an international agreement, whenever the president goes to war, then why can't Congress force Trump to stay in all those places abroad or to stay in all those treaties? The fact that President Trump has the power to undo all of those deals, bargains, and deployments shows that actually the president really does have the primary power in foreign affairs, despite what these critics have said when Republican presidents were in office. Um, sorry to uh, not to give you a spirited debate, but John and I, once again, accord. Um, I would just add a couple of points. Look, the, the whole notion of professionalism and insulation political control is not only wrong as a matter of policy, it's profoundly anti-constitutional. Uh, what underpins the way in which ultimately the separation of powers is supposed to work is political accountability. That is the overriding check on the president. That is overriding check on Article 1. does not obviously work in case of Article 3, but it was not meant to work this way. So by diluting uh, accountability, uh, whether it's in insulations from removal, uh, and I'm going to get into the details about uh, about that, quite a bit of litigation in the last uh, in the last uh, year or so. But whether it's that or taking the position that foreign policy, not even the use of force, but pure foreign policy, diplomacy, is, is somehow delegated irrevocably to the mid-level officials at the National Security Council of the State Department. If that were true, there would be no accountability. The president can always wash his hands and say, I didn't do it. These guys did it. So it's profoundly... Uh, uh, anti-constitutional and, and does not work as, as a matter of policy. Um, uh, uh, what's interesting to me when it comes to foreign policy is that you know, Trump really is the ultimate Jacksonian, and that necessarily produces somewhat vertiginous results because in some instances you go in where your political opponents don't want you to go in overseas, and sometimes you go out. You don't have sort of a cross-cutting notion that the U.S. should be either uh, involved everywhere and nowhere. It's all driven by how you see the national interest. I may disagree with that, but at least I think to the extent there's a Trump doctrine, it, it is basically follow the national interest and don't worry too much about anything else, which is, again, I think the framers would not have had, uh, would not have had any problem. So I, I want to remind people to submit questions via the chat. Uh, let me ask a couple that I've, that I've received. <clears throat> so one is an, an interesting question about it executive orders and whether you think that they are 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 growing as it certainly appears to or at least in terms of their importance and whether you see this as a, a symptom of the breakdown of our norm you know presidential norms and, and processes well i can just go first for a second having dealt with this issue before look executive orders uh, to be honest i don't know john may I look at the stats in this administration in the past i remember uh, Bush 43 was uh, criticized quite robustly, <laughs> not as robustly as this president, which is in the class of his own. That's, uh, you know, Nixon, to the extent you believe in afterlife, must be looking at what's being done to Trump and may feel that he was not that <laughs> that much molested by his political enemies. But uh, there was a lot of emphasis, as, as you both know, on the number of executive orders uh, issued by various administrations. I personally think that this is fake news, to use a term, uh, who cares how many executive orders you issue? The question is, are you trying to do something that you do not have discretion, statutory discretion or constitutional discretion uh, to issue? I'm not aware of any executive orders that, that are problematic uh, in, in, in this administration. 
numbers wise, I, I'm not sure, but I mean, that's the, the notion the president cannot issue executive orders. is kind of, it's kind of silly. Uh, it reminds me of another debate, which hasn't been much in, in evidence lately, whether or not the president can issue signing statements and what's the legal weight of signing statements. But fortunately, actually, you know, it's interesting, John, you, I don't think anybody, this one, one sin, I don't think Trump has been accused of, of issuing bad <laughs> signing statements <laughs> as compared to uh, Bush 43. Now, I agree with uh, David on all those points. I mean, the number of executive orders, I remember that was used as a criticism of President Bush, uh, the signing statements. And it's sort of silly because you can always manipulate how many executive orders there are. You could just combine several of them into one if you don't want to have too many numbers. And as David said, it's really what's important is what's the authority for the executive order. Uh, I had my uh, doubts initially uh, with President Trump because of the first travel ban executive order. You might remember it had banned travel from Muslim nations, uh, several Muslim nations, but had an exception for Christians. But after criticism, the Trump administration quickly amended the travel ban and actually ended up issuing three different issued three different versions of it. Uh, that's actually the response of people who care about the Constitution, uh, not people who are determined, as, as Davis pointed out, some past presidents don't try to modulate their positions, don't try to come into coherence with existing constitutional case law and understandings, but try to ram through a different vision, say like Andrew Jackson or an FDR. But Trump in his litigating positions, as David has pointed out, doesn't hasn't done that. Um, the other thing is a lot of the things that people are upset about with Trump's use of executive orders are not the kinds of executive orders they should be worried about. These are usually what Trump's doing is exercising delegated powers from Congress. I mean, in the immigration area, as we know, president now can, by, by Congress, by Congress's delegation, halt travel from any country on national security grounds. Uh, nobody was claiming that this was unconstitutional when it came time for the pandemic and shutting down travel between China and Europe. Except maybe Nancy Pelosi, I think, was upset that it was cutting off travel. <laughs> <laughs> but, right, this is all, if people don't like it, it's not Trump's use of the delegated power that's the problem. It's whether Congress should have given that vast amount of power to the executive in the first place. And again, it goes back to John's point. Are you, I asked my liberal friends, are they imposing a double standard? They're happy when President Obama uses broad delegated congressional power. In Obamacare in particular, there's a lot of executive orders. David was one of the leaders of the constitutional fight, constitutional challenge to Obamacare, but it gave huge delegations of authority to executive branch. I don't remember our uh, liberal friends complaining about that, but when Trump uses, actually he's using, if anything, I try to make the case, he's, and this is another example where he's not really a populist, he's a constitutional conservative, is that he's actually been using his executive hours of uh, orders and many of his powers to manage the branch to try to make it smaller and more modest. There's a huge deregulatory push going on. I think the Heritage Foundation has been a big advisor to the White House about this. And how many presidents, you know, go around saying, I want to stop regulating things, not increasing regulation. Uh, there's apparently a, 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 a de facto rule that for every one regulation, the executive branch issues that they have to repeal three. That's incredible. That's almost a, it's an abnegation of power by the White House. I, I, I actually think that regardless of the numbers, you're seeing a president is actually trying to reduce the overall effect of executive power when it comes to, I think, domestic affairs and the domestic economy. Can I inject one point very, very briefly at the of tuning my own horn because I have a piece about it in today's Wall Street Journal. Uh, I wonder if, John, you and both of you agree with me, there is probably the most consequential executive order that this administration has ever issued. It was issued late last month where the president, actually, it's kind of interesting, executive order. It's executive order to himself. He said that what he'll do when the time comes on January 3rd to transmit the uh, uh, apportionment data to Congress, he is going to exclude illegal aliens uh, from the apportionment baseline, not from a census baseline. But it's going to be interesting because I'm sure there will be litigation. There will be efforts to uh, to enjoin it, uh, which would be unprecedented to join the president. It will be unprecedented to try to get an injunction for something that would not be done for many months. But it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, so I, I don't know if you agree, but I think it's probably the most consequential executive order he's ever issued. I think it was like 21st or 22nd of July. That could well, that could well be. 
Um, he's issued other very consequential orders too, obviously, you know, the, the travel ban and building the wall. Uh, but, but this would certainly be up there. Yeah, because this goes to the heart of, of how political power evolves over time. Obviously, the weight of the states in the Electoral College and in the House. So I've gotten um, some great audience questions. Uh, one, it's asking about what's going on in Portland and whether the government can sue, uh, you know, the, the local officials in Portland. But let me let me take that theme and expand it. So let's talk about federalism in the Trump administration. So there have been lots of pushback from the states, the travel ban, the wall, sanctuary uh, uh, cities, uh, attempts to deal with mail and balloting. Obviously, what's going on now, the administration uh, challenging some of the COVID restrictions, particularly as they pertain to religious institutions. And now, obviously, what's going on with the protests in, in Chicago and Minneapolis and, and, and Portland. Uh, is this what does this say about the president's use of you know his authorities and the constitution and is this kind of federalism tension in the long run a healthy development uh, I, I think that actually the trump administration has been fairly respectful of federalism sometimes in ways that have uh, reduced its uh, ability to achieve its political goals and i think that's a good test of how committed the any president is to the Constitution. The one issue you didn't mention, John, I think, was the pandemic response. And there, I think, uh, clearly, President Trump, for example, would like to reopen the economy a lot faster than these state governors are. And in a weird way, the fate of his reelection, I think, is tied to the fate of the economy. The fate of the economy, unfortunately, I think, is tied to the decisions of a lot of blue state governors who are quite happy. I know it's happy is the wrong word, but are, I think, keeping their states clamped down much longer than they should. Uh, I could easily see a different president trying to override them, you know, uh, but Trump hasn't. He's actually had the government play the normal constitutional role, which is that uh, public health and safety is the primary job of state governments, and the federal government supports with money, technical expertise, resources, or ultimately could step in if states fail. Oh, and to regulate interstate international movement and commerce and travel and so on. And that's pretty much what Trump has done in the pandemic response to great criticism from people on the left who sort of who, despite their claims, Trump is a dictator, would like him to be some kind of, you know, pandemic dictator. Uh, and I think that's the same thing with what you're seeing in the, the civil disorder. Again, you know, Portland, Seattle, Chicago. All these cities, you know, the Wall Street Journal just published a report that uh, murder homicides are up by double digits in half of our largest cities. Uh, still, that is primarily the job of state and local police. And the federal government is there to support them to handle the interstate aspects of crime and disorder. But only if the states and cities fail or request help, do you really need federal involvement other than protecting federal property, federal buildings, federal personnel, enforcing federal criminal laws like drugs and gun laws, or again, if the federal, if the states and cities fail to protect the civil right, the, the constitutional rights of people in these neighborhoods, maybe the federal government has a role there, something the federal government's done since Reconstruction. And to see the accusations that Trump is somehow sending a occupying army and seizing power. These are not strange blog posts. These are columnists in the New York Times making these accusations. It shows again this dynamic where Trump actually is acting within normal presidential practice, going back to George Washington and the Whiskey Rebellion, or Andrew Jackson and the nullification debate, or Abraham Lincoln protecting Fort Sumter. And you have it's his critics that make these outrageous claims, and they lead to Trump the field of relying on traditional constitutional understandings and practices. I'm, I'm in full accord. Let me just emphasize one point. There's a concept of a stress test that, of course, as both you know, has been applied to sort of examine how banks would deal with difficult economic times within their loan portfolio. I think that the kind of crisis we're facing, both a pandemic and, uh, unfortunately, with a rising tide of, uh, of civil unrest, is a kind of test for our constitutional system. And I would say a lot of governors, and I want to be partisan, 
and say that it only applies to blue states because I think some governors in red states have done the same. Uh, the there is to the extent there is a fair examination of this. You would you would have to say that a lot of governors and, and not even governors, mayors, county executives have sort of become a little bit drunk on power, issuing orders that clearly have nothing to do with their constitutional authority. You know, p- penalizing churches and and other uh, disfavored institutions. You know, one of my favorite examples is the governor of Michigan, who uh, at one point in time, I know it's still in place, had a ban on motorboating, but not sailing, which whatever way you look at it, obviously we're talking about different carbon implications, but doesn't have anything to do with with coronavirus uh, response. Uh, And the same thing now regard to law and order. Whatever you say about this administration, they have not done anything, even resembling this. I, I, I shudder to think if we had a different president who would be tempted to say, all right, I'm going to have a f- exertion of federal power to make people wear masks. And they're going to say, what's the big deal, whatever you think about the efficacy? Well, I, I think, John, you and I would agree, uh, sort of you, John, uh, Malcolm, that if we uh, – uh, there's, there's no way to anchor – a mandate to wear masks in any enumerated powers that Congress has. In some ways, it's even worse than individual insurance purchase mandate that John you was kind enough to mention. I, I litigated in the challenge to Obamacare. So, but I, I just wonder how many presidents would have resisted theirs to just say, let's do it. It would look good. Maybe it would be challenged by somebody. Maybe it would fail. But So the, this administration has emerged from the stress test, a dual stress test of COVID-19 and, and the rising tide of unrest better than I would think of any president in modern history I can think about. And unfortunately, that's not true at the uh, at the state and, and, and municipal level. So uh, we're coming up on the end of the hour, but I want to ask one more question that I got from an audience member. I think it's a good one. Uh, it says, Professor Yu's book, <coughs> excuse me, does an excellent job laying out the constitutional and historical basis for the exec, for executive power. Can I say, I didn't, I didn't send in this question, by the way. <laughs> he, he talks about the revolt of the bureaucracy in Chapter 3 and the Foreign Service in particular. However, the swinging pendulum of presidential foreign policies has not helped the U.S. achieve long-term success in places like South America, Asia, Middle East. Isn't having a bureaucracy ch- checking snap presidential policies a good thing? If I, if I may go okay. for, for two seconds, look, I believe there's a room for what I call in, intra-Article 2 checks and balances because it helps to curb some of the a more despotic, if that's the right word, tendencies. And I, I've always derived great comfort of it. But, but, John, there is a fine balance between interagency resistance and foot dragging and blatant undercutting of, of ability of your political masters to execute in the accountable fashion their policy. So I, I would not want to turn Article 2 uh, civil uh, uh, branch uh, officials into robots, but I, I certainly do not enjoy watching the massive disobedience that has led to, in fact, ongoing coup, let me use this word, uh, against the president dating back to 2016. So it's too much of a good thing. And there's a great question to end it with, John, if you're saying at the end of the hour. Uh, one is, uh, I'm not arguing against the foreign policy bureaucracy or law enforcement bureaucracies, as David's suggesting, you need to have a uh, body to enforce the laws and carry out policy. It's who gets to control it. And I think the, uh, the distortion to the Constitution that was introduced by Woodrow Wilson was the idea, and, and, and sort of put on steroids by FDR and LBJ and then Obama, was this idea that that bureaucracy should be independent of political control. Uh, That's the difference between, I think, the idea of an independent council and what President Trump was trying to do with the Mueller report and so on. Uh, The other thing I I just mentioned in closing is that uh, I think the task of the the person who holds a presidency in 2020 and 2024 may well be none of these questions. You know, if you think about what uh, one reason Trump, I argue, was defending the Constitution was he himself was on the defensive most of his term. The Constitution was a huge shield to him, given these unrelenting attacks on his legitimacy. But the forward-looking agenda, I think, for people studying the presidency is how is 
the government going to have to change to confront the different kinds of threats that we're facing in the 21st century, which are not exactly the same. The pandemic is a good example. Terrorism is a good example. Uh, the rise of kinds of fighting and challenging us uh, internationally that don't look like nation state wars uh, anymore. And also, how do we, uh, how does the government manage in this new kind of economy? You know, we, uh, we, we have a government that was designed for the industrial revolution and it came to its fruition uh, during periods when you had large employers like IBM or GM were the basically responsible for a lot of the economic activity and organization of our private economy. That seems so obsolete now. And you can tell just by those hearings last week that the Congress had with the top, with the CEOs of the top tech companies, they didn't really have a clue how to regulate Google, Facebook, <laughs> and uh, Twitter, Microsoft, uh, because they're still thinking in the choice. And I think that's going to be the task for the whoever wins the 2020 election. Uh, and you would want, whether it's a Biden or Trump, you would, I would think, want them to have the kind of powers uh, in the executive and energy in the executive that I try to defend in, the, in this book. Well, again, uh, I'm sorry that David wasn't able to join us by video, but thank you, David, for persevering and calling in. And I, again, apologize for my voice, uh, but thank you very much for, uh, for joining us and buy John's book. It's really terrific.